Ladies and gentlemen, please take your seats. Our show is about to begin. And now, here's part two of our interview with Mike Mattesino. This is The Soundtrack Show. you uh, about something that listeners write in and ask me about all the time that I am not qualified to answer, and that is about what you're touching on here, the basic economics of soundtrack releases over the years. You know, digital aside and, you know, our economy aside, you know, in terms of, of soundtrack sales since the 90s, you know, obviously it just like fell off a cliff. But are we seeing a comeback of sorts with sites like La La Land Records or Entrada and all of these incredible, you know, special edition releases? It just seems like it's such a great time, just even in the past 10 years, to be um, a collector of this stuff. Like we're seeing more music, uh, more options, more CDs, more vinyl sales. Is, it, is there a comeback happening of sorts? Um, I don't know that there is, honestly. Um... I feel like when I first came to L.A. from New York in, in the early 90s, there was a, an embracing of catalog and of film history, um, not only within the industry itself, meaning the home entertainment departments within the studios and in what historians were doing and programs that were going, but I think with just the general public. I was seeing, you know, you'd get, that was when we started getting, when American American movie classics, the cable channel was completely different. It actually showed American movie classics. <laughs> um, and, you know, Turner Classic Movies came on the scene and, you know, but on home video you got movies from all eras were freely released on VHS, on Laserdisc, which I was involved in. And, and, I, and it was a viable thing. You had people in their 20s, willing to watch movies from the 30s, 40s, 50s. What's gone by the wayside, I think, is this, this interest in the past. And um, it's tough to get people interested in catalog. Even, I think, among soundtrack collectors, um, there are people who really like what we call the golden age scores, um, but they're sort of a dying breed. Um, you're not getting... Um, you know, it hasn't renewed itself. You mm-hmm. get a lot of people who are passionate and uh, have a fondness for the 80s and 90s. Um, but it's very, very hard to get um, the the deep catalog, golden age stuff, you know, to be embraced by people. And it's sad because the older it is, obviously, the more work it takes to put them together. And I love working on uh, those things because, again, um, it's, it's part of this cultural heritage as i said mm. so i think that we've kind of lost that um when we did the rca victor star wars uh 
um, physical stores, brick and mortar store sales on day one of Star Wars Episode Four uh, were twenty five thousand copies. I don't even know that you could even do twenty five thousand copies even of that score now. So I mean, it ended up I ended up getting a gold record plaque for it because it sold over a quarter of a million. You know, it's such a specialized market. There was a time where Film Score Monthly, they could do between five and 10,000 copies. It would eventually sell. Now it's really hard for anything to do more than 1,000. But I think that the resurgence that I'm seeing is not in that area, but it's with um, film music being performed. Right. With uh, live to the picture concerts um, and so forth, we have have more film music being done in concert halls by symphony orchestras than ever before. For me, I'm you know I'm asking myself, how do we translate that to um, interest in buying the music and owning the music? Well, there again, the answer is that people want it digitally. That's how the general public consumes music now. So, um, you know, and there's all kinds of boring stuff I could tell you about our attempts to get CDs into some of the symphony shops and things like that. And it's, it's very hard from a business standpoint. It, it, the model doesn't work. Interesting. You know, we're still trying to figure it out. But I speak to people like David Newman about this. Um, you know, what can we do? It's like you're having so much of this music performed. It's like if these people only mm-hmm. knew that they could go to the concert and then get the score we might be able to um, rebuild this market a little bit. So it's, it's, it's very hard. I, I actually see it dwindling. I just think that uh, you know, everybody who is passionate about it has to um, reach out. They can't uh, just you know, be in their own little world with it. You have to go out and share it. You have to tell people about it. You have to bring people over and play them some music. You know, do what you can to get uh, interest. Um, I mean, um, all of it has validity. All of it is a window into history. Um, all of our history is preserved on film and on audio tape, you know, and it's important. I, I, don't, I don't really see this as a renaissance. I think the quality has improved. Um, the uh, attention to the detail and um, the comprehensiveness of the releases that's improved. We've learned more about how to do these things, um, but it has not directly translated into an increase of uh, of the market. I would love to see it even get up to something like ten or twenty thousand um, for a well-known title. That that yeah. that that I think the labels would all rejoice on that. And they would stay in business for quite a long time, even if we could just double what we're doing now. Interesting. That's really interesting. You know, I I always say. And uh, I always say to people, um, you know, if I'm at conventions and things, and I, I, I do a lot of Star Wars conventions, and, and a lot of folks buy the three and three quarter inch plastic figures and things. And I always want to encourage people, if you love, say, Star Wars, or you love Superman, or you love Back to the Future, buy the soundtrack, buy the Blu-ray, buy a piece of the thing that you love and, and support the music because what ends up happening on the back end is I, I will get emails saying, why don't we have special editions of the following movies? You know, and, and I always say it's because, well, because nobody buys them. You know, we want them. Um, you mentioned David Newman. I went to, of course, I, I, you know, we make our pilgrimage to see John Williams at the Hollywood Bowl every year. 
and and of course David Newman is is conducting this wonderful first uh, opening half and and you know talks about all of these incredible film scores and before John Williams takes the stage to play The Force Awakens or Superman you've got David Newman playing Corngold and The Adventures of Robin Hood and you've got thousands of people listening and I and I I do I have that same instinct of how do we generate that same interest because you know live concerts I remember when John Williams did E.T. in 2002 you know and performed it live and that was such a new thing now it happens in orchestras all over the all over the country all over the world um, so it, it is kind of this weird you you sense I mean yeah you just you just spelled it out completely there's this weird kind of duality of it's more popular than ever yet sales of soundtracks are still lower than ever um, and how do we fix that? Well, you've got, you've given given me a lot just there. For um, first of all, uh, next year let's definitely connect when you're down for the bowl concert. Uh huh. Um, but I have to also say that uh, you know I when I first came, I made my um, to to California. Uh, I, John Williams doing the concert at the bowl was the first time I went there, and I might have missed a couple of years, but generally speaking, I've gone every year. And it's always wonderful. There were years where he did entire evenings of his own music, which is just mind-boggling because I think maybe in terms of a, a, you know, a composer who could conduct an entire concert only of his own music and it would all be recognized, I don't know that we have had too many of those. Maybe John Philip Sousa. Right. But, um, you know, so that was tremendous. Uh, and I've just looked for That's just like the summer capper. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah. Down here, um, we look forward to that Labor Day weekend. Um, it's like the end of the end of summer ritual. But I have to tell you, the, the ones of the recent years where David's done the first half, I think they're even better because mm-hmm. you know David, as you said, comes out and gives you know all the, all these kids are there who have come to hear Star Wars and wave their lightsabers around, um, but they're getting this sort of um, little primer. In film music history, and mm-hmm. um, when David will conduct some of his father's music, that just again that there blows my oh. mind. You know what must it be yeah. like to stand there with the Los Angeles Philharmonic, and sixteen thousand people there, you know, and um, and you're conducting something your dad wrote, you know, sixty years ago. And he wow. talks about John and we're playing in John's uh, as a violinist in John's recordings. And then John comes out and then he talks about the Newmans and the role that that family played in his career. <laughs> yeah. So it's just you get this like all of Hollywood history just sort of just happening right there on the stage, you know, in, in one evening. Um, and, and I just think that those are great. And then it, that it leads up to, you know, him doing the Star Wars selections and all the lightsabers come out. And it just becomes this magical experience. Um, and, uh, you know, so I, I think that they're, you know, it's, it's gotten even better. But again, there, I'm just, I wonder, you know, uh, if you could let all those people know that uh, this music exists and they can enjoy it, could we increase this market? I'd really like to. Yeah, really like because the more away. people that buy it, the the more music we end up getting, you know, and it's it, it's 
it uplifts everyone. And that's really what, what this show is about, too. It's really about uplifting the work of other people and trying to give a platform to people like you and, and anyone else uh, to talk about this stuff and, and, and how just fantastic this music is. And now for a brief intermission. We return now to The Soundtrack Show. You know, we were talking about David Newman and some some scores and film score history that maybe don't necessarily get as much attention as something that's as big as Star Wars. Are there, of the dozens, if not hundreds of scores, actually it is hundreds of scores that you've released, are there some that you just think are are so spectacular that never get the recognition that you feel like uh, they deserve? That if you had an opportunity to speak to as many, you know, uh, listeners like of this show to say, hey, if you haven't checked out this score that I did, this is some incredible music that you really need to go out and discover. Are there any gems like that that come to mind that you've worked on over the years? Oh, gosh. Um, Not to put you on the spot or anything. No, maybe. Well, if, if we keep this, uh, you know, um, centered on John Williams for the moment. Um, sure. There's an obvious one, which is that He's known for Star Wars, but wow, the same year was Close Encounters of the Third Kind. And yeah. to me, that, that, that's my favorite score of his, and the one that he is in the favorite of his own. And, and probably he would have um, uh, been happier to get the Oscar for that rather than Star Wars. Not that he's not proud of Star Wars and his connection with it, because, uh, you know, he's, uh, it's very, very important to him. But I was in New York for the premiere of the Star Wars in concert at Lincoln Center with David conducting, um, and uh, in my room at the Princeton Club, working that afternoon on the liner notes for um, Close Encounters. Um, actually, not the performance. I, was, I had to go out then to rehearsal, but I was working on the liner notes to Close Encounters and trying to make sure I was getting that right and listening to that music. Then I went to the rehearsal for Star Wars, and. I enjoyed it, but I couldn't help feeling that, well, you know, this is good, but Close Encounters really is just something, it, it, it takes the role of, of score in a movie into another level, um, where, you know, Star Wars is very sort of, uh, does what film scoring has always done. It, uh, it's the emotional heart of the film and helps propel the plot along, et cetera, et cetera. I did feel that on a couple of moments where, uh, David had them turn the movie off where he wanted to work on something that I would rather have had them just sit there and play all 88 minutes of Star Wars without the picture and I'll just sit here and listen um, you know, rather than have to compete with the uh, dialogue and sound effects. Um, but that's a case where I think you get the emphasis on the five note signal from Close Encounters but huh. there's just such ambition uh, and um, with that score and such I don't know if we... we Prior to that, if we had a real mainstream movie that really had such a challenging uh, musical approach, um, very, very daring.
think it really paved the way for um, what, uh, you know, that you could get a little bit atonal and a little bit experimental in film scores. I don't know that they were really doing that at the symphonic level until after that. You had jazz composers, um, you know, um, Don Ellis and Quincy Jones doing stuff in the 70s that was, you know, in jazz influenced and not necessarily uh, melodic. Those would come along. But in terms of the full symphony, you know, what Kubrick did in 2001, A Space Odyssey with existing music, John Williams then did in Close Encounters with original music. And I think that just, it opened up so much. I think it was as influential on film scoring just as much as Star Wars. And uh, and then the other personal favorite of mine is uh, Empire of the Sun, which I just, uh, I, I loved working on that thing. Uh, it was kind of hard, but I just, I, I loved mm. finally having all the music from that um, and really exploring that and discovering that what a what a challenge that was um, because the music had to be emerging from the character's imagination rather than the plot itself. So terribly difficult challenge to find just the right music uh, for that film because I don't think that really, um, you know, there had uh, been a time where that really was uh, called for. It just was a, it was just, just a unique uh, situation where, and, and that's at least my interpretation of the score, is that it's emanating from the character's imagination and creating in his mind how the, how the world works. That's something I would just uh, recommend just um, on the subject of John Williams, you know, uh, get away from Star Wars and start uh, checking, uh, checking out some other things. Um, 1941 is actually in my top 10 John Williams scores list. I just think that's uh, absolutely fabulous. It's just uh, just like just not uh, there's not a, a bad or boring note anywhere in it. It's just it's just absolute crackers from beginning to end. That was another great release, the 1941 release. You know, and hearing all of that music, um, yeah, and yeah, I mean, again, there the album was fine, mm-hmm. but you know that if if he wrote that score in say 1999 rather than 1979, we wouldn't have just gotten a 35 minute album. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and especially not with that much, you know, terrific music composed and recorded for it. You know, it makes the original album feel kind of like a, a sampler. Still valid, still um, mm-hmm. worthy as uh, kind of, you know, the um, assembly of the time and what they did. Um, and there was a case where I reconstructed the original album for disc two so that we had a reason to include all the alternates and source music and things like that as bonuses. But when you hear the whole, you know, 70-something mm-hmm. minutes of actual score done for the film, 
it's just it's just amazing. It's just seeing here he is right at the peak of his powers, and um, uh, you know for a not very successful film, but uh, there are no warts on that score at all. It's just uh, it's it's an amazing piece of work to me. The soundtrack show will continue in a moment. We return now to the soundtrack show. You are still working with uh, the John Williams camp, and of course with Amblin. Uh, right now, you're still working with him. In fact, I understand you have another really exciting release that we're about to get. Do you want to talk about that? Um, you're referring to Schindler's List. I am. I am referring to Schindler's List. I'm very excited. Okay. Yes. Yeah. So um, yeah. So it's the 25th anniversary mm-hmm. of that film. Uh, it's getting a um, 1,000 screen reissue in the U.S. theatrically. Um, starts December 7th, and um, the uh, suggestion came up of um, doing a soundtrack release on it. Um, earlier this year, we, with La La Land, did Saving Private Ryan mm-hmm. for its 20th anniversary. Um, but there was a uh, case where it was, in terms of um, the ratio of score to the running time of the film, had less music right. frame, by, frame to frame or beat by beat than most scores John's done for Stevens films. Um, and so consequently, only a few things were left off of the original album. But, uh, they, you know, I, we did get asked about it over the years, you know, uh, would there ever be an opportunity to get the film versions of some of those cues out? And so um, so we did it this year. Um, has a couple of bonus tracks on it with uh, the remaining uh, unreleased uh, music from Saving Private Ryan. Um, Schindler's List... Um, was unique in that the approach, uh, you know, was a difficult one because there's a there's a sacrosanct quality um, about it, and ultimately the decision was um, this is an album we really don't want to touch. Mm-hmm. We want to leave it as it was, and uh, you know, just make sure that it sounds good. Um, so for that, we went to the um, the Glenn Meadows master that was done for the gold CD. Um, and we got that original digital deliverable uh, back for that. And that became disc one. Mm-hmm. There is um, a degree of uh, un, you know unreleased music that wasn't included on the album, um, but also a lot of source music. And it ultimately, you know, we listened to all of it. The source music just seemed kind of impertinent. It serves a function within the story. But uh, even if it is music that John arranged or conducted, um, it felt impertinent. So what we ultimately did was come up with a 28-minute program of um, unreleased cues and alternates and a couple of film versions. Um, That's basically a a revisitation of the score on the occasion of its 25th anniversary. And, uh, you, you know, so having gone through it, it's, again, that the focus is on material that was not on the album or material that's in the film that was not on the album. Um, and uh, to put together just sort of a reflective experience um, on the occasion of the 25th anniversary and uh, an, an opportunity to write some nice liner notes and, um, and just to and get it back into um, circulation and uh, help be part of this whole... Um, you know, uh, anniversary reissue because uh, it's interesting that the movie is 25 years old 
the um, which is half the length of time as um, the length of time between the events in the story and the time when the film is released. So if you say 1943 to 1993, that's 50 years. So we've already gone half that time again. So the um, memories of the Holocaust and uh, eyewitness accounts, you know, those people are basically gone. So yet the uh, I- issues in the story and, uh, and this kind of, um, you know, hatred that we uh, have in the world is still there. Um, and still needs to be talked about. So, um, you know, I think just in discussing what we were going to do for this album, that's basically what uh, the decision was to uh, let's just come up with music that uh, can be sort of an added experience to the album of a revisitation of the score on the occasion of the anniversary and have it be sort of reflective and let let each listener just uh, experience it and just... Uh, and just reflect on it. And, um, you know, and hopefully, um, in our, in some small way, just, uh, spread some good into the world rather than hatred. Cause we have far too much of it. And that music is just such an important and, uh, passionate voice in that movie. I mean, it's just, I mean, it's another one of those just transformative, uh, scores and, you know, uh, just took the movie to this whole different level of emotion. And, and I couldn't. It's it's absolutely inseparable. I, unlike Private Ryan, which which you know so much of it is just the harsh, cold reality of and lack of film score. I would argue that Schindler's List is just the opposite. The music is such the emotional engine of that film. I cannot wait to uh, to hear that release and and hear the um, the bonus material as well, um, and just kind of hear it all presented and kind of re-experience and rediscover that score. It's been a lot, many many years and. Great performances, great, great writing, just a great soundtrack. So thank you so much in advance for your work on that. That is definitely a pre-order for me, and I'm sure a lot of listeners. Um, one thing that you've touched on a couple of times, and I just kind of wanted to wrap up this interview, and, and thank you again, by the way, for coming on the show, but your liner notes are such an incredibly important um, source of information for soundtrack collectors. And certainly for me, when I researched this show, I feel like the liner notes are such a huge part of your career and legacy because oftentimes outside of your liner notes, very little to sometimes no information exists about some of these film scores or at least more than just surface information. Can you talk about your, your process in 
researching and putting together these liner notes? How long does it take? Uh, and what is it that is most important to you that you try and convey when you're when you're putting these liner notes into a release? Well, I think that the I, I don't. It's a little weird. I'm the only mastering engineer who also writes liner notes, so it's a bit strange. Um, and there are some people who do just this; they just write. And so, but therefore, I I tend to just pick and choose so that I don't um, get burned out on it, and it ends up being sort of a comfortable at the end of the day feels comfortable shift. But it is actually a gear shift. I mean, I can be working on, I tend to work on music and then find sort of a, a place where I can stop and just go into, just turn one side of the brain off, turn the other side on and, and, and do the writing process. There's of course some crossover, but I generally find that once I get lost in the writing, I stick with it till it's done. And I will say that, uh, you know, a resource that we've, in this community, been very, very fortunate to have all these years is um, Ned Comstock at the Cinema Arts Library at uh, USC. I would frequently go down there and he'd pull out things from the special collections for research and has always been such a tremendous um, supporter of all these soundtracks. And on a lot of these releases with the detailed liner notes, it eventually reached a point where he told me that when students would come in and want to research a certain film, that he would point them to the soundtrack releases, and particularly a lot of the ones that Film Score Monthly was doing, um, and you, which again, which some some of these films are very obscure. You might have an A-list composer, but the film might be very obscure. So you, the soundtrack, oddly enough, becomes the one spot where it's kind of all of the research of the production of the movie, how it came to be, how and where it was filmed, you know, and then, and then is collected and put in one spot. And then you start talking about the music. So it becomes a place where you now don't have to go and read, you know, a dozen different articles and notices here and there. It's like now all in one place and you, and you get that. Um, so I had that in mind that kind of told me that this, had an importance to it and so I try to think of it as um, you know I want it to be worthy of something that could be in a research library so that if you do get this very strange antiquated thing called physical media and there's this actual paper booklet in it <laughs> it's going to uh, tell you something that's going to give you a glimpse into a certain time and place and a certain project and give you the right context um, and uh, you know, and, and have value um, in that way. Um, my process basically is just uh, the usual. I'll just go to the, the academy library, these you know, um, and just uh, do the research. I end up with usually a document full of random notes, and at, with absolutely no clue how I'm ever going to shape it into something that makes any sense. Um, then the usual things, just internet research and listening to the music and making my own notes and just uh, just working at it like just a big ball of clay and just shaping it and uh, cutting stuff and um, just working it until I kind of feel that it's right. Um, and then each one's different. Um, I, for example, felt that on Jurassic Park collection that um, 
it needed the production, the information about the production of the films. Because I think, and I felt, unless it had the context of um, what, um, how dinosaurs were um, depicted in cinema prior to that, and unless you understood what the revolution was to um, get the effects to the point where they were in Jurassic Park, then the music's not going to make any sense. It's so true. Because there's no way that you would write a theme like John wrote for Jurassic Park if it was, you know, just um, iguanas shot in slow motion, you know, in 1950. <laughs> it just, it wouldn't work. It's like it, you needed the context of what it took to make the film and what the gamble was that they were taking, um, as, along with um, things that I know you've commented about, which is this, um, in response to what I wrote there, which is about how there's um, sort of a parallel going on between our experience as an audience and the characters within the story. Um, there's a sort of a self-awareness aspect of it. So unless you understood that the music isn't, you won't understand what the music's really accomplishing. So I felt that was necessary. As opposed to um, something like uh, E.T. where I didn't feel that I wanted to um, explain the production because it's, number one, it's been, um, there's other places to go for it. Um, Jaws as well. I felt this, you know, this so many places to go to read and watch about the making of the films. So much um, behind-the-scenes footage has been shown, particularly with E.T., where the sort of the veil was pulled back. And mm. I just felt that, you know, I want to put the, the veil back over. And I want to, um, you know, get the magic back, even to the point where I didn't even mention the actors' names in the liner notes, because I wanted it to be about the characters as if they're real people. Um, so each one is a, a, is a different approach. It usually tells me what it wants to be. And I think that any writer will kind of say that, um, or a composer working on a film score, the film dictates what the music's going to be. Um, so there's an aspect of it that, uh, you know, I feel like the typist and that what it really is, is something just circling around over my head and in, in the air somewhere and I'm just kind of channeling it and just uh, it so it so it tells me what the notes should be lately though I have shied away from doing track by track um, I don't like writing them I don't like reading them um, there are certain scores where it's appropriate ET was one of them certain Star Trek the motion picture but I'm really starting to feel more of the mind now of, um, again, setting the context, maybe coming up with a few things to draw your attention to, but then backing off and let the listener live with the music and have his, his or her own experience and, um, and see what comes to mind. So, um, you know, that's kind of where I am now. And it, that just sort of feels right to me. I think, again, the Film Score Monthly Era that kind of established itself. It was part of its uh, raison d'etre, you know, to um, be sort of archival. And that definitely has its place. But now I kind of feel like it, it, that can just sort of devolve into something where you're just being told what the scene is and then what the music's doing. 
and I and I just feel like I, I don't want that. It's a, to me, it's a very cumbersome um, thing to read, and is just uh, takes away from the pure musical experience of just you know give me a few little close pins on the line and then let me listen to the score and see where my, where my mind goes and 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 what I'm hearing. Yeah. And let it be. Let me explore it myself as a listener. So it's again it's a tightrope walk. You have to say just enough um, to you know give people a foundation for the experience, but not spoon feed them interpretations. I've, I've really backed away from that aspect of things. Boy, I, you you've given me so much there to to think about, and and one of the first things that comes to mind, of course, is that you know we're talking about music that is written for a visual medium. You know, in the same way that uh, it's impossible to talk about an opera without talking about characters and plot and the libretto. It's impossible to talk about uh, film music without talking about story and character and motivation. And and just like what you're doing, reacting to, uh, you know, what the music is telling you to write in your liner notes, the composer is doing with uh, what the director's uh, putting up on screen and reacting to that and trying to enhance that. And it, I guess it just is something that comes from uh, someone like you who listens closely for a living and uh, and it just is so reflected in your wonderful liner notes. And I, I really am torn by what you say because I understand wanting to have a pure musical listening experience. And certainly in many cases, I think of a lot of concert pieces that people like John Williams have recorded specifically for soundtracks. That is wonderful. And in and, and, and other cases, like you mentioned Jurassic Park, I can't tell you how brilliant I thought your writing was in terms of establishing that parallel between what the production was doing at the time by discovering digital dinosaurs and what the characters were going through. And that produced this kind of hymn, this church of, of nature and of, of science that ended up being that theme. And I think that what was so insightful about that, and I'm sorry to go on a tangent here, is that it not only helps you understand Jurassic Park, but it helps you understand the lost world and why that has a much more traditional monster movie, sort of almost Max Steiner to quote Spielberg, uh, inspired store, score. I think your liner notes are, are, I'm just as big of a fan of your liner notes as I am your, your mastering work and, uh, and your sequencing, because I do think that, you know, in many cases, this stuff is important to talk about. And I just greatly admire, and I want to wrap this up by saying I greatly admire the amount of thought and time you put into all of this, um, you know, and some of my favorite soundtrack releases over the past 20 years have your your fingerprints all over them. And I wouldn't have it any other way, especially when it comes to the liner notes, because it is an enhanced my listening experience. And I can honestly say this podcast, my previous podcast would not exist without being inspired by a lot of your writing and work. So thank you very much. Well, for thank you. I have to say the only reason if that's true about the writing, it's only because I pick and choose and don't get myself burned out on it so um you know uh i will you know when i when i i'll i'll, I'll know about you know the ones that i want to write about and um, i'm very glad that i've gotten to do certain ones um my three favorite goldsmith scores alien poltergeist and star trek um and then and then my my four uh, top spielberg films jaws close encounters et and empire of the sun so um, notches in the belt that I'm very, very proud of. That's fantastic. Well, I can't wait to, I did pick up the alien special edition. I can't wait to talk about it. There's so much there to discuss. I, you know, talk about talking about behind the scenes and, and all of the drama there, but 
I really enjoyed reading all of that um, and, uh, you know, made a lot of sense out of a lot of things that I've seen and read in terms of documentaries. And, and this is what I mean. It's really great. And certainly I know you couldn't write liner notes for two soundtracks a week. So I'm glad that you're, you're picking your battles so wisely because we, we definitely are, are, uh, are benefiting from it. So thank you, Mike Mattesino. Thank you very much for stopping by the show. I hope to have you on sometime soon again. Oh, let's do it again, David. Thank you. Thank you.